Now, after I left the Army, I went to Kansas State University. Now, I, I tell people it was a, quite a culture shock for me. I had spent a decade in the military. I'd been over to the Middle East three times. I was pretty much indoctrinated in the military. And I signed out on what is known as terminal leave, which means like I was going to sign out and I still had some leave days left. So technically I'd be in the military, but I wouldn't show up to work for like three months or something like that. So I signed out for terminal leave on a Sunday, took off my uniform, and on Monday morning, I started spring semester at Kansas State. And it was a culture shock, but it was also a time of personal discovery. Now, I'm an adult, right? Like, so it's not like, you know, I'm leaving mom and dad's house, but I am being introduced to things that I've never learned before. And I was taking classes like aviation sciences, aerodynamics, geology, uh, and I had to take trig and calc and, and, and algebra and all these classes, and I'm learning a lot about the world. It was a time of learning how things work, right? Like, how do you find the area of this? How do you, how do you, how do you find the distance between this? Why is this rock structure react this way? And I'm learning about how things work. And then one day, I recall distinctly, I was an aviation guy sitting outside of the hangar in Salina, Kansas, with one of my professors, and he knew I was a Christian, and he began to question me about my views of evolution. Now, looking back on his questions, I don't think that he actually understood what evolution is, right? Like, he didn't understand his question to have anything to do with macroevolution or microevolution or Charles Darwin's theory. It was really more about nutrition. Um, but nonetheless, either way, I found that I was unable to give a defense of my faith. Maybe you've been in a situation like that as well. Maybe you're, you've been questioned before on, uh, on your, your view of the age of the earth or why there is something instead of nothing. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the age-old philosopher question, right? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why are we sitting in these chairs on the side of this mountain on Ketchikan, Alaska, on this world, in this spot in the universe, and why isn't it just all blackness? Why is there something instead of nothing? Why is there a universe? And this topic matters for us. This topic matters for us. We must how we answer this question because it has theological consequences. Right? Ideas have consequences. How we answer this question has consequences. So as we think about worldview, and we're thinking about like the lens through which we see the world, right? Like that's the simple definition of worldview, is how do we interpret the world around us? When someone walks in in uh, cargo shorts, and it's negative 50 outside, how do we interpret that? You know, it's an oversimplistic view, but we immediately see that, and we don't start thinking and evaluating. We just say, man, it's cold outside. Why do you have shorts on? So our worldview is a list of presuppositions that we have about the world that help us make sense and interpret what's going on around us. And everyone has a worldview. If someone tells you they don't have a worldview, they're wrong, right? Because everyone has this list of presuppositions, and everyone must answer these questions. There's five questions that every single worldview, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what age it is, no matter what time you live in, you have to answer these five questions. Is there a God? If there is a God, what is he like? So even an atheist has to answer this question. He answers it in the negative, that there is no God. But he has to wrestle with it. Is there a creator behind the creation? Who or what is man? What are people? What is knowledge? How do we learn? How do we, how do we grow in our understanding? How do we understand to begin with? Are there ethical boundaries? How do we determine what is acceptable behavior? And in today's question, why is there something instead of nothing? So today we consider the topic of cosmology. Cosmology is what we talk about today. Now, what is that 75-cent word? Well, it comes from, like all these words, two Greek words. Cosmos, cosmos, as I was told to pronounce it, and logos. Right? Cosmos is the world or universe, like the, the existence and logos is the word, message, reason, or teaching. So cosmology, if you, in an academic setting, refers to the study of the origin and development of the universe. 
Cosmology is the study of the origin and development of the universe. And you might not put it into those words, but you have one. Like we've talked about before, ideas have consequences. So in our worldview, sometimes things filter down through us through Disney movies. But a lot of those philosophies and ideas started in an academy somewhere. And so we have to think about, why is there something instead of nothing? Cosmology. This morning, I will argue from the passage that we are going to look at that there is something because, instead of nothing because the all-powerful, all-knowing, self-sufficient, eternal God sovereignly acted to create the universe. Right. So last week, we looked at the active part in the passage, and we looked at God, and we thought about God, the God who needs nothing, the God who is self-sufficient, who is before all things, that he has no beginning and end. And this week, we are thinking about what he did in that passage. The universe exists because the sovereign God created and structured the cosmos. First thing we'll see is that God prepared the heavens and the earth. And the second thing we see is that he filled the heavens and the earth. And to think about this, we are looking at Genesis, written by Moses. It is the first book of the Bible. Its Hebrew name is Bereshit, which means in the beginning, the first words, in the beginning. The word Genesis that we use in our English translation comes from the Latin version of the Bible, which means source, birth, or generation. So Genesis comes from the Latin, and that's what we call it. Genesis lays the groundwork for the entire Bible. It's our, our starting point. It's how we make sense of the stuff that comes later. In Genesis, we find the creation of the world, the history of the world from Adam to Abraham. And then we find the history of the Jewish patriarchs later on. And Genesis is the appropriate place for us to start as we're thinking about worldview. Because as Kenneth Matthews says, without Genesis, we don't have a worldview. We cannot have the Christian worldview without Genesis. So if you turn with me in your copy of God's Word, to Genesis, chapter 1. Sometimes, if we're in the Old Testament, I'll say it's between this book or this book, and literally, you just open to the front of the Bible. I mean, you've got to go through all the, the cover page and the, all the other stuff they have in there. But it's the first book. Genesis, chapter 1, starting in verse 1, and we will read the whole chapter. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and there was darkness he called night. There was an evening and there was a morning, one day. Then God said, Let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water under the expanse from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came and then morning the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the water he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth, bearing fruit with seed in according to their kinds. And it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw it was good. Evening and morning, evening came, and then morning the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for the seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. 
to rule the day and night, to separate light from darkness, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the fourth day. Then God said, Let the waters swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves or swarms in the water according to their kinds. God also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters of the seas, and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came, then morning the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said, look, I have given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth (coughs) and every tree whose fruit contains seed. There will be food for you. For all the wildlife of the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything that has the breath of life in it, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw that all he had made, and it was very good indeed. Evening came, then morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that we have your perfect and errant word before us, that we can understand and we can know how you created and why there is something instead of nothing. God, give us wisdom. Give us humility as we approach your word and we think about creation and what you did. Father, I pray that you would guard these people's ears, guard my tongue, that if there be anything unhelpful or just unprofitable that would come from my mouth, it would fall away. God, have your perfect work in the lives of these believers. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. God sovereignly created and structured the cosmos. And the first thing we see is that he prepared heaven and earth. So to give you a little idea of how this this sermon is going to work, is we're going to first walk through the text, and we're going to look at some different views over the age of the earth, because, I mean, if we don't, that's just the elephant in the room. We're going to think about competing worldviews, and we're going to think, think about the essentials of a Christian worldview, and why we can trust what the Bible says. So first, let's just walk through the passage. God prepared the heaven and the earth. Day one, we see that God commands light to come forth. He separates light from darkness. He calls the daytime, the light time, day, and the dark time, night. Now, a common question is, all right, wait, 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 wait. God creates light day one, but then he doesn't create the sun until day four. What in the world? Clearly, the Bible must be wrong, right? Well, no, not at all, because the presence of light, there has to be a sun. The sun is not the only source of light. Many say God's presence alone is the light, and you say, well, that's crazy. Well, we'll read Revelation, because we know at the end, there will be no need of a sun, because Christ will be our light in the new heavens, in the new earth. So what we see on the first day is simply this, that God said, let there be light, and there was light, and there is light, and there is darkness. He calls the day, the light time day, and the night time is the dark time. <coughs> Each creation period, as we, as we will see, as we, as we saw when we read, as we went along, it says evening came, and then morning. 
So we'll talk about this more in a bit, but for now we should note that it signifies time. Right? There is an evening time and there's a morning time. There are bookends to this thing that God has created that he calls day. Two events, morning and evening. And we have to say, as we read along, and you'll, this might make more sense if you're unfamiliar with some of the arguments, we have to say that it means something. Right? It doesn't mean nothing. It's there for a purpose. And after each creative period, it says there's morning and there was day, the first day, the second day, the third day, the fourth day. So then we get to day two. And we see that God separates the sky from surface water. It says, divides the water below from the water above. Now, what does that mean? Well, what we see is the water below is the surface water. That's stuff that covers the earth. We know about surface water, right? It's right out here. But we also know about the water above because we live in Ketchikan. How many inches of rain was it? 177 last, this year or what, last year? Y'all told me about So we know about the, the water above and we know about the water below. The moisture that accumulates in the air, he separates from that that is on the surface. Evening comes and then morning. Day three. God separates water from dry land. He causes land to rise up. Distinguishable masses form. He creates boundaries for the sea and the ocean, but he also creates vegetation. Plants spring forth. Plants that bear seeds, plants that have fruit, all according to their kind. So there's a separation. There's not just one plant, but there are plants according to their kind. And what we see in these first verses is that God has prepared the earth, right? He's prepared it. He's separated the water. We have mountains. We have vegetation. We have stars and and celestial beings in the sky. He's prepared the earth. Then evening comes, then morning. And second, God fills the earth that he has created. I lied. We haven't got to the sun and the stars yet. That's coming in the filling part. So forgive me there. Day four, God creates the sun and the moon. So we see that he fills the heavens that he has created. So he he places all of the planets and the stars and the sun and the moon, all these things in their places. And what we see, if you just look back to the passage there, (coughs) is that in verse 15, it says the lights provide light on the earth. But in verse 14, it says the lights serve as signs for the seasons, for the days, and for the years. So what we see here is that there is a marking uh, of these, these celestial beings, the sun and stuff, the rotation of the earth around the sun. All of these things mark hours, days, years, seasons. There's a finely tunedness to our universe. It's not simply light, but to mark time. Evening comes in the morning. Day five, God creates birds and sea life. He creates robins and eagles and hawks and seagulls and all of the birds. He creates them, but he also creates humpbacks and salmon and and halibut and even spiny dogfish that wreck our halibut lures and mess up all of our stuff up. God created those, and and he says to them, multiply and fill the sea, fill the earth with uh, the air with their offspring. And, And we notice here that they are created in the beginning, according to their kinds, major groupings. The Scripture emphasizes limitations according to their kinds determined by God for each grouping. Evening comes, and then morning. Day six, God creates land animals and man. He creates cattle, deer, moose, bears, all of these animals that, that, that fill the earth according to their kinds and tells them to multiply. And then He creates man. And we're going to talk more about that next week. We're going to talk about anthropology, or or man, next week. But for now, we can just note that he creates our kind on the sixth day in his filling of the earth. Evening comes, and then morning. And what we read in a plain reading of the text is eight major creative acts over the course of six days, and God says, and it was so. Why is there something instead of nothing? Because the all-powerful, say, self-sufficient, eternal God without beginning or end created the entire universe. He acted. 
And so as I mentioned, though, we have to talk about the theories of the age of the earth. If we don't, we're going to leave more questions than answers. So it's just one of those things that we, we have to talk about. Now, as I've told some of y'all, there are some doctrines you like to talk about, and there's some that you're, you're leery of. And in the Pacific Northwest, I have found more people get rowdy over this doctrine than any other doctrine. Now, if I was preaching in Georgia, there are certain doctrines they would get mad about that y'all have never gotten mad about. But up here, it seems like I've gotten in more trouble over the age of the earth than anything else. So I ask you to approach this with me humbly and to be patient with me and know that I'm going to do my best to cover everything before I talk about what I believe convictionally the Bible is saying. And as I, with all that said, I think that there are two major theories in the West about the age of the earth. Evolution and the biblical account. Now, some of you are saying, no, 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 there's way more, but bear with me. This might be a bad illustration, but it's the best one I could think of. If we think about the theories of the age of the earth as a field goal, Sarah was watching the Chiefs last night, think about a field goal, right? You have two major uprights. But between those uprights, there is a horizontal piece, and that's the spectrum that we're getting into in a minute, but I would argue there are two major uprights when you talk about this. There is evolution. And there is a straight reading of the Bible. And we're going to start with evolution and we're going to work our way to the other upright. And I want to say at the beginning too that I know that there are a few of you that hold different theories. And so that's okay. As far as I know, no one ever holds an unbiblical theory that's in our church. Um, but do know that there are different beliefs and that is okay. Um, and we're going to talk more about that. I cannot get to every single theory also, right? Because even within the major theories I'm going to give you, there's a spectrum of beliefs within those as well. And so we would be here till supper time if I tried to unpack every single theory. So if I do not unpack the one that you convictionally hold exactly how you would, just please bear with me and give me grace. But the first one is secular evolution. In 1862, an Irish scientist named Kelvin theorized that the earth is between 20 to 40 million years old. Now, I just want to hit pause there and say that even as an artilleryman, that is a pretty wide gap, 20 to 400 million years old. 20 million or 400 million, that's a pretty wide gap. And then we have a guy named Charles Darwin that comes along and building upon previous work over the age of the earth, he claims that man evolved from a simple organism into a primate, into a man that we know today. Today, most secular scientists believe that the earth came into being 4.5 million years ago and that the universe came into being 13 billion years ago. Actually, I think it's 4.5 billion. There's a typo in my notes with an explosion that randomly caused dust and gas particles to form into planets, galaxies, and stars. That's secular evolution in a really fast cliff note. Second, there is theistic evolution. Theistic evolution tries to take the classic teachings of God and the scientific understanding of evolution and make them compatible. And that is what they attempt to do. So they're trying to essentially hold hands with both. They want to hold hands with a secular university and classical Christianity. This belief believes that God created the universe by utilizing a process of evolution. One of my first Sunday school teachers, Sarah and I went to a church when we were first baptized that I didn't know this till later on, um, was big on the other side of the conservative resurgence back in the day. And the Sunday school teacher had been there since then, and he had been a professor at Kansas State in chemistry or something like that. And he asked me one day, he's like, well, why couldn't God use evolution? And again, I didn't have an answer for him. So people believe this. They believe Genesis 1 should be understood in a non-literal way, and that later on, God elects two hominids that become Adam and Eve. And these two hominids that become humans are special, and they begin mankind. Third, there is the day-age theory. So the day-age theory says, all right, this is not a 24-hour days, but a period of time. So kind of like we would say like in the day of Moses, right? That's what these days mean. And each of these days could equal millions of years. So day one could be like, you know, six million years. And day 
two could be billions of years or something along those lines. Again, there's a spectrum within each of these beliefs. Number four would be the intermittent day-age theory. So they believe that this creation happened on a day, just like mentioned here, but that there was gaps between those days. So in other words, day one, God does everything it says he does, but then there's millions and millions and millions of years, and then day two, he does everything he said he'd do, and then there's millions and millions and millions of years after that. There are these large periods of time that pass between each day. Fifth is old earth creationism. Genesis 1 and 2 are not to be taken literally. Creation involves numerous steps over a long period of time, hundreds of millions of years, but God is providentially working along the way, correcting and making things how he wants them. And then 8,000 to 24,000 years ago, he creates Adam and Eve, kind of the final step in this creative piece. Then we get to gap theory. I promise you I'm wrapping these up. Uh, I had a whole bunch, and I went down, and yeah, I wasn't sure how many to tell you about. The sixth is gap theory, which is a three-step theory. So God creates the world perfectly in verse 1, and then in between verse 1 and 2, Satan rebels and falls, and then in verse 2, we see that the earth is void because of Satan's fall. And then in verse 3, God begins to recreate the earth, um, starting with day 1. So the gap in gap theory is between verse 1 and 2, and that's how they account for the old look of the earth. Right Now some of you, if you think that one uh, doesn't have a lot of history behind it, if you've ever read the Schofield Study Bible, right? like Cyrus Schofield held this belief. So it wasn't just liberals that hold some of these. We get to day 7. Six days, literal creation. God created the earth in six literal 24-hour periods. This is the one that I believe. This is what I hold. This view takes Genesis 1 through 11 as historical narrative, right? Like, and that's why, if you notice when I was reading it, I tried to emphasize God did something, and then it happened. God did something, and then it happened. Not poetry, but historical narrative. This view does allow for microevolution, but not macro. So what are the differences? Micro is changes within a species of color, size, or features. <coughs> so like, and we were talking the other day with somebody about dogs, right? And like an Irish setter might look a little bit different now than did 100 years ago, but it's still the same species. Macroevolution is one species going from another. So that's like a frog that crawls out of a pool becoming a dog. Like, it doesn't allow for that. But six literal days is the plainest reading of the text. Old Testament scholar Jonathan Gibson from Westminster Seminary argues that the passage is historical prose and not a form of poetry or mythical writing. He says there are 55 forms of a vagtol, which is a a Hebrew word for um, a high percentage of Hebrew prose particles, right? So in other words, without getting too in the weeds, there are a bunch of God said, God did, God saw. It looks like someone accounting for something that happened. James Barr, Oxford professor of Hebrews, who's now passed away, but he said, the only natural exegesis of Genesis 1 is a literal one. That is what the author intended. Barr goes further as one of the leading Hebraists of his day and argued that he did not know in his day of a single Hebrew or Old Testament professor at any world-class university that believed the author of Genesis intended anything other than a literal 24-hour, six-day creation period. But now what's interesting about that is that James Barr didn't believe in a literal six-day creation period. He was a liberal Right? So he didn't believe that's what happened. But as a Hebrew scholar, a man who knew about Hebrew, he said, you can't read this passage and think that the author intended anything other than that. In fact, he told a friend one time, he said, you know, evangelicals are the only ones that try and stretch Genesis 1 to mean something that the author didn't mean. He said the liberals believe it means a six-day creation period. They just don't believe it. The fundamentalist and conservative Christians, they believe it's a six-day period. He's like, but evangelicals are the only ones that come up with this whole, whole spectrum of beliefs that I just read and made you listen to. 
So if I'm a six-day creationist, how do I account for, you might ask, a young earth position? That's what it's also called, a young earth position. How do I account for a young earth position when the world looks so old? That's a fair question. Well, I want to give you three, three things we can think about. Three reasons why I believe the earth appears to be old even though it is young. First, God created the earth with the appearance of age. God created the earth with the appearance of age. And I would argue that all of you must believe that at some level. Why? Because none of you believe, as far as I know, that Adam began as a zygote or an embryo or a fetus or an infant. When Adam became self-aware, how old was he? We don't know. All we know is he was a man. So let's say for argument's sake, he's 25. Like he looked like every 25-year-old we have today. And he opens his eyes and he's alive. Well, how old is he? He's like seconds old, right? But he looks like a 25-year-old man. If we went and got our DeLorean, right, and we got, we got Marty McFly and Doc, and we, we zoomed back and we got Adam right after he was created and zoomed back, to a scientist and said, how old, on your, on your technical experience, how old is this guy? They're not going to say two seconds. He's seconds old, and yet he's an adult. What about his wife? What about Eve? God causes a deep sleep to go on Adam, takes a rib, creates Eve, right? Did he bring Adam a baby and said, here's your wife, raise her up? Well, no, she's a grown woman too, but how old is she? Seconds, minutes, days but she appears to be a grown woman. What about trees? We don't read in the narrative that God got out a, a, a sling full of seeds and went around planting things and said, you know, in 50 years we're going to have an oak over here. What we see is there are trees. They're present. They have fruit on them. Adam, don't eat out of that tree, right? We're going to talk more about that next week. You can eat that tree. If we chopped it down, how many rings would there be? You know, my buddy Daniel came up and taught about Genesis a couple years ago, and we went up to the museum uptown, and they had this huge cross-section of a tree. It almost drove me a little bit crazy because I wanted to go, but he sat there and counted every single one of those rings. It took a really long time. I had looked at everything I could look at on Facebook while he was counting these rings. But what would you do if there was a tree that had just been created and we cut it down? Would it have rings? Would it appear to be a 100-year-old oak? And if you still say, well, that's crazy... You know, you're stretching something to mean that doesn't mean. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about God taking water and making it into wine? Right? You remember that story, what God did, what Christ did? At the marriage supper in Cana, right? Like he takes water and he makes it into wine. And the wine is so good that the the house owner's like, man, why did you hold back the 43 BC vintage, man? That's the best year. Right? He doesn't say, well, this is just water. I don't know, maybe if you're in that mind of his grape juice, that's another argument. But from what we see in this, it appears to be fermented vintage wine. But what was it two seconds ago? If we got with Marty and Doc and our DeLorean and we went back and got a jar, because remember it was in jars, got a jar of that wine and took it to a guy in a lab and said, hey, analyze this. What are the chances he would look at the molecular structure and come back and be like, this is water. I don't know why it's red, but it's water. No, he's going to say this is wine. Scientifically evaluating it, it will look like wine. But from a human scientist standpoint, a guy from the Civil War period looks and says, rocks of the world are between 20 to 400 million years old, and we all say, well, I don't have an argument. You say, but what about fossils? Well, the second is a universal flood. Now, whereas the modern scientist is going to look to time to be the creation of a lot of the rock structures, and Grand Canyon is usually one of the focal ones they'll talk about, this theory argues that rock formations that appear to be formed over time were actually formed during a massive catastrophic event, such as a universal flood. Tremendous natural forces unleashed during Noah's flood because of sin when God destroyed the earth. 
cause coal and diamonds to produce in a year because of high pressure. And this theory points to canyon formations such as the one that was formed during the eruption of Mount St. Helens. You can Google this stuff, go look on YouTube. That was formed in days, not millions of years. We also must remember that theory is not law. Theory is not law. There are things within science that we can test, right? Like as I've said before, science at its most basic, basic sense could be how things work. You can dissect my hand and you can find out how it works. You can take my smartphone apart and you can find out how it works. We can test it about things. But when you start theorizing about something that happened millions of years ago, supposedly, there's no way to test that. How do we know the rates of decay are the same that they are today a few thousand years ago? Well, if you look that up, there's actually an assumption where the scientists said, well, we're just going to assume that it, they're the same. We're just going to assume that the rates of decay are the exact same 10,000 years ago as they are today. Friends, we are not anti-science. In fact, Christianity births science as we know it. But as believers, we have to filter everything that we think we know through what we know we know because God has told us. The secular scientist may put God's word on trial if he chooses, but we filter all knowledge through what we know is breathed out by God, that which is theopneustos. Because as I've told you before, ideas have consequences. Why does the earth look so old? Well, the third reason is we find in Romans 8 because the earth has been groaning under sin. Sin entered the world. Sin mars everything in creation. Sin causes pain in childbirth. Sin is the cause of disease and illness. And in Romans 8, we see that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. Futility. Death. Decay. Sorrow. Sickness. All of these point to a fallen world that needs redemption. So as Christians, and we think about our cosmology, as we think about our worldview, what are the non-negotiables? As I mentioned, not all the creation views mentioned are outside of the Christian faith. I hold to a young earth, but I'm not ready to say if you believe in a gap theory or a day age that you are not a true believer. In this spectrum of belief, though, at some point you do exit the Christian faith. I do not believe evolution is compatible with Christianity. So what are the non-negotiables? First, I would say a Christian cosmology must affirm that God is creator. It must affirm that God is creator, so evolution is out. A Christian cosmology must affirm that God created the world out of nothing, ex nihilo. God is eternal. He is without beginning or end. And when time, there was a time when time, space, and matter did not exist, and then God spoke them into existence. God did not come into a universe with materials floating around and say, hey, I can use this to make what I want. He made the materials from nothing. They came forth at His command. A Christian cosmology must affirm creation is distinct from God, yet dependent on God. He is not dependent on us. He is ase. He is self-sufficient. However, we are dependent on Him in every single way. As one of my mentors said, it is almost as though a violinist making music is a good illustration for this, because if God were to lift His bow from the strings, the music ceases and we would cease if He did not depend upon if he, we, if he did not uphold us every moment of every day. A Christian cosmology must affirm that what God created was good. God created the universe good, and then sin entered the world. In His original creation, what God made, sin and death and decay entered, and there was none of this prior to the fall. A Christian cosmology must affirm a historical Adam, Friends, Romans 5.12 states that sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And then we read, through one man's disobedience, we were all made sinners through Adam. We'll talk about that in, in three weeks. Through Christ, we are made righteous. If we lose Adam, we lose Romans 5. Ideas have consequences. Six, a Christian cosmology must affirm 
that one day we will see this subject clearly. And when we do, God's Word and science will not be at odds at all. Right? One day we will see what happened with our, our new minds in the heavens and earth, and it will line up clearly and perfectly with what God has told us. God's Word is inerrant. It's perfect. It's sufficient. Where the Bible speaks, God speaks. That is an essential claim of Christianity for 2,000 years. Though we may not understand in our finite brains how all the pieces fit together, there will ultimately be no conflict with what God's world said, God's word says, and what happened. So as we think about these worldviews, <clears throat> what happens if we accept popular worldviews that compete with Christianity? First, Marxism. Marxism's the easy one. Because to be a Marxist is to be a militant atheist. Communism and Marxism is committed to evolution and the fact that there is no God in their minds. So to accept Marxism, full Marxism, in its fullness is to deny God. So full Marxism is incompatible with Christianity. Then we get to modernity and, and naturalism. And, and this worldview explains everything from purely naturalistic processes. Modern science methods and theories are the only source of knowledge. With There's a spectrum, but with most of these people, that's the way it's going to be. Some, most of them are atheists. Some might be theists in that they believe in an intelligent design, but not the God of the Bible. And some may claim Christianity, but it's generally not going to be full biblical Christianity. If a modern thinker professes Christianity... Their commitment to the inerrancy and sufficiency scripture is generally going to be shaky at best. Remember, for the modern mind, truth and knowledge can only be found through scientific research. That that is observable. I'll give you an example. Someone gave me a book a few years ago by a Canadian Christian scientist named Hugh Ross. Hugh Ross. And he claims in this book that we need to raise the book of nature, as he calls it, alongside of the book of scripture so that the two are equal together now you church history guys where do you know of of another time in which something is raised up to the same level as god's word rather you're good reformed people the catholic church raising tradition up to the same level as god's word so you can see already i'm cringing as i'm reading this book and he states to those of us who have a young earth view are too overly simplistic. And he says, of course there was death before the fall. It's part of our digestive process. It's part of our ecosystem. And he even claims that death before the fall helps spread the gospel. I don't know what he means by that. I've thought about, like, does he mean like we eat, like I eat bacon in the morning and I have the energy to go out and preach the gospel today or there's fossil fuels for my car. I'm not really sure what he means by that. But he argues death before the fall is a good thing. He also argues that pointing to what the Bible teaches makes it hard to reach scientists with the gospel. And can I just say as a side note, as someone who is involved in, in uh, things within our um, denomination, uh, I'm, I'm weary of hearing about how we need to downgrade the Bible to reach people with the gospel. Well, sure, we could say the Bible's wrong about what God says in creation to reach scientists, and we could stop talking about murder to reach murderers, and we could stop talking about holiness to reach this person, but I don't know. I'm going to stand with the Bible. And to be modern is to believe that we are moving from ignorance into enlightenment. In the modern worldview, you see Scripture is outdated, full of inconsistencies, and untrustworthy. To be modern is to accept naturalism At best, it places limitations on God. At worst, it completely rejects Him. Then we get to post-modernity. Post-modernity. The post-modern thinker is generally anti-supernatural, but is inclusive of other cosmologies. Feelings based on personal truth are held above scientific discovery and the Bible. So how I feel, my truth, is the highest thing. Right in the postmodern mind, I sat down with a, a gal. She didn't say I am a postmodern, but you talked to her long enough, you found she was a postmodern, and she said she was a Christian. And I asked her how the world began, and she said, "Well, the biblical account is a creation story, like any other creation story." She said, "Now I believe the Bible, and I believe that, but 
she did not weigh any more heavenly in her mind than a tribal creation myth. You can have your creation story, and I have my creation story, and they're all the same. To be postmodern is to downgrade God in his act of creation as one story among many. So as we think about this, how does a biblical cosmology strengthen our faith? When we find ourselves at a T-intersection, and we must choose between what God has told us and what we think we know, whether it be my feelings or a textbook, when we find ourselves there, what do we do? Well, of course, if you know me, you know I'm turning with God's Word. I'm staying with what God has told us. Because when we begin to pull apart the threads of God's Word, where do we stop? Because pretty soon the whole thing's going to be unraveled at our feet, right? When we stick with the biblical text, friends, we stand with the God-inspired authors of both the Old and New Testament. An ancient Israelite would have read this passage and read it in the plainest sense, as, as Barr told us. David, Daniel, Isaiah, they would have understood Genesis 1 as historical narrative. Exodus 20.11 says, For the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them in six days. He rested on the seventh day, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and declared it holy. Friend, this passage is not an image. It's not an allegory. It is not an illustration. There's no comparison language used. The passage emphatically says God created the world in six days. Exodus 31.17 The Sabbath is a sign forever between me and the Israelites, for in six days the Lord created the heavens and the earth, but on the seventh day He rested and was refreshed. Psalm 104, if you follow it, it follows Genesis 1, 1 through 3, right along. It doesn't, it, doesn't, it doesn't stretch it, it doesn't change it. We get to Mark 10, 6 through 8, Jesus says, From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. We have Jesus affirming what was said in Genesis 1. Luke's Gospel, the evangelist traces the genealogy of Jesus, not just back to Abraham, not just back to David, but all the way to Adam. All the way to Adam. Paul in his sermon at the Areopagus said that wrong. In his letter to the Romans and the Corinthians, all of these places, he references Genesis as historical narrative. Time does not permit us to look at every cross reference in the Bible, but I hope you see that when we read Genesis 1 as historical narrative, we stand in the company of all the other Bible authors. And I would go even further to say we stand in the company of 1,800 years worth of Christian church. When we stick with the biblical account of creation, we affirm not only that the Creator purposefully created the world, but that He is actively and purposefully bringing the new creation. God created the world, and it was good. He actively created. He purposefully made the universe as we know it, but then sin entered the world, and death was the result, and creation is groaning under sin, and man fights with one another. They fight with God. They rebel against God. There is decay. There is death. There is chaos. And then God brings a new creation. God institutes a covenant of grace in which He will redeem His creation. God institutes a covenant of grace where all the promises and all of these covenants will find their fulfillment in one man, the final Adam, Jesus Christ. And it doesn't use creation as an allegory for what is happening, but shows us there was a definite creation and there is a definite new creation. That because of sin, God sent His only Son into the world to walk the life that we could not walk. Fully God, fully man, born of a virgin, holy, laid down His life on a cross for the sins of the world, rose on the third day, and is at the Father's right hand. And as we read, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 We read in the Bible that God, before the foundation of the cosmos, purposefully and intentionally set His love on you, calling you to Himself, electing you, preordaining uh, you to salvation before the foundation of the world. He intentionally, He purposely sent His Son. Nothing is random. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is wishy-washy. But God moved like God does. 
We see this in the picture of Revelation where God, who is locked down sovereign, brings fulfillment to all things that He has promised. Remember, Revelation is not God's best guess. It is to His church saying, this is what will happen because I'm God. Evil will be vanquished. Sin will be no more. I will bring the heavens and the new earth. That's what God's saying to His people. The doctrine of creation, friends, it is foundational to our Christian worldview. Because it informs our understanding of the gospel. And it informs our understanding of the new creation in Christ. There was nothing. And then there was something. And there was something because an all-powerful, all-knowing God spoke it into existence. He created a habitable world, a universe. And the Christian worldview considers everything in relation to God. Remember, our theology is, is not just about God, but all things in relation to God. That means our understanding of how the universe came to be relies more on what God said than what we think we know. All-powerful, all-knowing, all-sufficient, eternal God, sovereignly active to create the universe, friends. That is why there is something instead of nothing. Now, I mentioned my time at Kansas State. And I remember from my physics lab, that old school looking university type lab from like real long room, 50 style benches. I remember one thing from that physics class in Newton's first law, the law about inertia, and is this. An object at rest will stay at rest unless it is acted upon by an outside force. The universe did not randomly come to be. It not randomly explode in a universe that we have around us is the result, but there is an initiating action by an outside force. The force is the one true and living God, the same God that gave us this word that we might know. He makes this word clear. In the beginning, there was God, and God spoke, and there was light, there was a universe, there were plants, animals. And he created this universe for himself. And as Psalm 19 tells us, it all declares his glory. Father, we praise your holy name this morning. God, as we think about the, the vastness of the universe and the finiteness of our knowledge, God, we are in awe and driven to worship. God, you are God and we are not. Father, impress upon us that truth today. Grant us humility. In the areas where we think we know more than your word, God, convict, crush that thought. And may we ever be found as a faithful people. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.